Take your Bible open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. I'm preaching through the book of Acts on Sunday morning, and I'm going to say some things that I said last week, so none of you will come up to me at the end of the service and say, you said some things I said last week, because I meant to say it, and I mean to say it today. And plus, half of you wasn't here anyway, so you can't, you don't know, so we won't worry about that. And any of you guys in the front, if you see me start off these steps, you step here and tell me to back up, all right? Okay? And so, Luke chapter number 22, verse number 39. Do you have it? And he went and came and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives. To the Mount of Olives. His disciples also followed him. They went wherever he did. That's what a disciple does. Your feet walks in his steps. Right? And so the Bible says he, at, when he came to that place, meaning Gethsemane, the garden of Gethsemane, he said to them, I pray that you enter not into temptation. So, so the, the, this whole thing here is about one more time, one more time showing these 11, and one's going to set him out, but these 12 guys, how to beat this thing called temptation. Now, nobody has a clue it's going to consist of what it does, but he's going to teach them one more time. And then look, he said, he said that, he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. That means he was about a, a rock's throw away. And in Israel, it's like here, anywhere you want to, you just reach down and pick up a rock. So he picked, just reaches up. I can just see him. And you go to Israel with me, and I try to describe it the best I can. He just takes it and throws the rock. And so the disciples, the three of them, they knelt down. They were the, they were the inner circle of the disciples. They sat there. And so, while Jesus was praying, they did what most of us did. They went to sleep. Now, this place was very close to Jesus in his heart when he was in Jerusalem. Now, when he was around Galilee, he, he'd much rather be there in his flesh around Galilee as in Jerusalem any day. But... When he was in Jerusalem, his favorite place was to come over into the Garden of Gethsemane and spend some nights, the Bible says, all night just talking to the Father. That was his place. It was his regular place. That's why that when Judas sold him out, got the money, walked up the hill, there he is, said, who by kiss? And he kissed, and he kissed him, and Jesus still looked at Judas, who had sold Jesus out, but traded him with everything he had, said he is not the Messiah, he is not going to be our leader, kissed him. And yet, I believe if he'd have knelt on his knees right there, Jesus would have saved him. That's hard for me to imagine. Hard for me to imagine when Jesus could have, uh, his hand could have been like a jackhammer and drove him into the ground. So here he keeps moving along the story and the, the, the prayer gets so intense that he, he says, Father, remove this cup, but not my will, but thine be done. The flesh, 
the flesh that despises this cup, the, the flesh and what the flesh is going to have to go through despises this cup. But it, so if this cup be, you know, be willing to take it away, but if not, I'll drink all of it. And so look, the Bible says he goes on and when he gets to the disciples, he finds them sleeping. You say them sorry dogs, yeah, but you would have too. You, some of you can't even sleep through a church service. I mean, you, you go to sleep when I'm preaching for 15 minutes. And I know it's boring sometimes, but that's all right. You sometimes make it boring by the way you're sleeping. And this is Jimmy Z. You need, you, you need to get a friend you like and get a zipa, okay? One of those zipas that keeps your friend from snoring. That, they've been advertised. So we need, we need to give them out the doors. So when Jesus gets back, they're all asleep. And they camp there that night. And Jesus wasn't on the throne. Now you think about this a moment. If Jesus was not on the throne in Jerusalem, he'd be better off in the garden of Gethsemane. If he's not on the throne in Jerusalem, he's better off on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane. Would you agree with that? That's where he went when he needed some quiet, when he needed some country, when he needed some hick, when he needed that type of refuge, that's where he would go at night. A place, uh, it still was a part of where you could hear some of the noise of the city, but it was across the Kidron Valley and none of the motor vehicles that we have today and none of, none of the equipment that we have today. And so it was a very quiet, very quiet place and he would go there. It was just a place of refuge for him. It got him out of the rat race of the world. Do you sometimes just feel like that you're in the rat race and you can't get out and if you did get out you'd run in a trap that's just what life is I understand it all but we lose our undistraction evangelism you tell me when we've had a service even at church when our evangelism doesn't get distracted We've lost that completely because we've got to get the TV turned off and we've got to get the DVD turned off and we've got to get all those the things that they play on television off. Then you've got to go get the other things they set in their lap play and get them off. And then you've got to get mama and daddy uh, to, to, to quit fussing with each other. And then you've got to do that. And by the time you get to witness to them, you're in the flesh and you've got to go repent. You couldn't win nobody to Christ. Un. Distracted evangelism is why that we've gotten in the rat race we have. We used to could sit down and have a normal conversation with somebody. We used to could rationally converse with somebody, not any longer. Secondly, I think we lose, um, we have a um, undistracted Era. We have lost that undistracted era. Evangelism is something we do on a regular basis. There's times it's been stronger than others, but there's eras that we live in 
where there's accomplishments that takes place in those eras that changes the era from one type of lifestyle to another style. The mechanical. When the mechanical era come through, it changed everything, didn't it? Changed everything. And so today we have a difficult time, and that's why it feels like every day, you know, you, you just, you're trying to kill, kill spiders with hammers and, you know, and stomp rats with your feet. You know, you just anything. You just got to try to pull it together. And so Jesus at night would go there and say, God, I, boy, it was a mess over there today. I just won't talk to you all night tonight. That'd be all right. And the father would say, son, that's, that's fine. But it was a rejoicing place. As he marched off of the bit uh, Bethany in chapter 19, he they started to make him boat in both places. Luke, uh, they told they started to make him uh, little uh, leaf uh, leaf branch. They go get the little palm reeds, and and we we see them there now. Not not too many. And they began to lay them there then, things that they built with, things that they used, things that they needed. They sacrificed to do that. I mean, when they laid something down for a donkey to walk on, that was a sacrifice for them. And here they are. And not only are, are the, the, some of the men and some of the ladies doing it, but all the kids is in on it. And all the kids is laying, uh, laying all of their all their palm leaves, and and they're and they're laying they're laying all their their all of their th- uh, coats and garments and and shirts and ties, uh, probably not ties, but all that stuff they laid down there. It's expensive, just so Jesus could ride a nun broken, cold, down. Mm. It's a rejoicing place. You say, why do you say that? Because the Bible said the kids was rejoicing, praising God, having a big time. I mean, they was going, you may have to read all four scriptures to put all everything I'm saying together, uh, all four of the gospels. But man, the kids was just excited. They, they were blown out of their mind that they was able to do this for Jesus. And they were just loving Jesus with all their heart. And, and the teenagers, you see, children in that day were oh, teenagers. And, the, and, the, and they were also the middle-aged children, and they were the little children. And here they are running around saying, Hosanna to the king! Hosanna to the king! Hosanna to the king! They said, we got to get this stopped. We got to get this stopped. Because they were rejoicing. Because you see, later on, it became a revelation place. Did you know that most everything we have was taught to the people of God about the second coming in Matthew 24. Now, those of us who study prophecy, study other parts of Scripture, like Zechariah and Habakkuk, and we study the book of Revelation, and we know those things who study, but the average person doesn't, and most of what they know they get from Matthew 24 and 25, and they don't even get it right. And so 
here on the Mount of Olives, he, since he's not allowed over there, he comes back across the creek, sets down where he spent the night and started to teach and he taught all day. Gethsemane. Place so special to God. I said all that to say this. And I want to talk to you on the subject of the story of the glory story. You see, this place is special because have you ever wondered why mountains were so important in the Bible? God could have just said they climbed the mountain. He didn't do that. He said they went to Mount Nebo. He said they went to Mount Ebal. You know, he would, he would describe which mountains. And, and mountains was very, very, very important. And they still are. There's out, uh, we might uh, call them huge, huge, uh, no vegetation hills uh, it, it, it midway into the south. But, but it's just, they're mountains. They're mountain ranges there. And so the mountains was always important. And why was that? Why was mountains always important? Well, that place was special, that, and we saw that. But secondly, we had to see a living vision of things. We had to see things in living color. And I found out you don't, you, there, there is times we, we've got, somebody's got to see it for us to believe it. You, know, you better see some things about your life. And when you see it, you better do something about then. Not next week, not next year, not someday, not put it off, not till it don't bother you no more, not till you can shake it, not till you can say, well, well you know, it's probably gun, over and done, nobody ever. No, no, deal with it now. So they, Jesus was put on trial. What is your perspective of that? Because when you get up on a mountain, what do you get? A view. You can see stuff on a mountain. You can't see anything if you're down in the valley. But, but you can see things from the mountains. In fact, if you were to go to part of uh, uh, our Gatlinburg, our state park in Gatlinburg, you would see more than you wanted to see. You, you wouldn't want to sit like that. You get a view. You say, well, what's so good about that? Well, the Dead Sea from Jerusalem can be seen from Mount Scopus, with it, it is within the city of Jerusalem. It's 20 miles and the Dead Sea can be seen from Mount Scopus, okay? Not only that, the Jerusalem from Olivet was like no other view. No other view you could get of the temple. No other view could you get of the temple mount better than the Mount of Olives. I mean, that was the place Today, when you see pictures, they come from there, where the temples once stood, and by the way, will stand again. 
And Tinker Toy Boy up in Korea better know that we're going to do something about his stupidity. I'm telling you, we need to understand they're out to take us away, but Jesus is out to save us so he can take us away. And so he was wanting them to understand that, that you can see so much from Mount Olivet and it, and, and that like you cannot see anything else. Mount Nebo, uh, from, you know, non beginning, it became, the, the, he was identified with Decimus. And so it became, now Nebo was him. So some are de, uh, de, uh, de, uh, identified with them because of their names as military commanders. You find a lot, a lot of people identify with the mountain. So first of all, mountains give you a view. What, what's your perspective? Look, look, are you... Are you messed up more today than you was yesterday? Are you a little colder today with God than you was yesterday? Are you a little harder today than you were yesterday? Is things, it's just, just, just not where it ought to be. Even from yesterday, things just seem to be getting in such a boring and hurtful and painful that we don't know what to do. What do we do? God, tell us what to do. I'm trying to tell you I took you to the mountain. You want to know what to do? Go to a mountain. Go to the mountains. I'm not talking about Gatlinburg. Get you a condo. I'm talking about go to a mountain, see what God will show you spiritually from this book. Amen. Find you, say, Holy Spirit, bring me to a mountain and let me see what you want. Y'all with me? See, mountains give you a view. Secondly, mountains give you a vision. Not necessarily a prophetic vision. Only prophets got those prim primarily. It was not necessarily a futuristic vision, but God up on the top of a mountain, when you are where God wants you to be, God will give you a vision of your work, a vision of your ministry, a vision of your evangelism, a vision of your spiritual gift, a vision of how he wants to use you. That's just how God operates. He lets you see what he wants to do. He don't say, go down there and tell him, I don't know what God wants me to do, but he wants me to do something. That's a dumb way to come to the altar. Now, we'll take it because we'll try not to let you up until we get you saved. But that's not what you do. When you do that, you, God's not going to talk to you. Because you wouldn't believe him if he did. Got a whole Bible full, and here you go to, running to the altar of the church saying, what should I do? We need to go running to Jesus gives a reveal things. I, you know, you, as you get older, you start to think about things that you didn't think about. 
when you was younger. This is why. This is why. Because if you'll start your Christian life from the mountain, when you get in mess or when you get in trouble or when you get in a struggle and when you get in a temptation and when you get in a dilemma and you don't know how to face it, you can go back to a mountain. And God will speak to you again. Gives you a vision. Number three, mountains give you a victory. Uh, we can see from a mountain armies as they come in with their captives and their spoils, we can come in like Abraham with his 318 men and all of the spoils and Lot and his, his, his backslidden, lost, I don't even see how he could be saved, nephew, but he's with him. And he brings him down, and, he, and here they come, and they're, they're, they're marching down with their caravan of all that stuff that they had. And if you'd have been standing up there on, on the top, if you'd have been standing on the, what's called the Mount of Temptation today, if you'd just been standing there and you watched them go by, you'd have said, that has been a victorious triumph. But it turned out to be a deadly damnation. You see, you can see things. Abraham saw from the top of that mountain, you stay away from Sodom and you do it forever. But not Lot. Lot said, I still own a little land down there. I still got a little business down there. I got a little bakery down there. Uh, my kids on cheerleader team down there. I got one. He, he, he may get to go to Sodom College this year, at least junior college. I got, oh, I got to get back. So when you get on pole on the mountain, God can show you some things he can't show you. And I thought about this, and I'm not going to preach too much longer. I don't have to. I'm be through. But... God walked that night. Think about this, folks. The night I read about today and the night we're talking about now, God, or Jesus, who was God in the flesh, he walked over what's called Kidron, the Kidron. Some people you'd call it the Kidron Valley. And it's where at the end at the end of the corner of the city there was a tunnel and the blood would flow out of the from off the altar and down into the Kidron Valley. It was mostly dry unless it came a big rain and everything was clean because every ditch and, and every mountain water would rush because it was nothing to soak it up. It'd just go somewhere and flood. And so it he walked that total over and back and on that mountain he saw everything that we see in Matthew through John 
Isn't that amazing? He was tempted on a mountain. He died on that mountain. He ascended from that mountain. <laughs> Thank God he's coming back to that mountain. And then from the valley, you just get a better perspective of how deep and how long you're going to be in it. I, you, I, look, I want to look at valleys like this. I'm going through a hard time today, but tomorrow will be over. It's okay. Don't y'all backslide it on me. Now, come on, talk. Help me a little bit here. You, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You think, well, I, this is kind of tough today, but in just a day or two, it'll pass. Things will go away, and yet you get up on the mountain, and God starts talking to you, and all of a sudden you see this thing don't have an end to it. I can't see the end. Is there, oh, yeah, it's got an end, but you can't see it. It's got an end on both ends, but you can't see it. You can go back where you came from and be backslidden, or you can go the other way. And one of these days, you'll look up and see a ray of sunshine, and out of that old valley, you'll walk with the shepherd holding your hand. Mountains of life define us. I want to say that just, oh, I got gracious, good night. I got 15, 20, 30 more minutes. Y'all are going home. You're going to kick, you won't eat till 2 o'clock anyway, so what difference does it make? You sorry men going to get on the couch and the women's going to be cooking. We don't know what's going to happen. It was a special place. But this was a special prayer. And this wasn't just any prayer. It was a special prayer. You see, all that was present there knew this prayer. It was something different. They heard Jesus pray too much. They knew something about this prayer was special. And you say, why was it special? Because as I told you last week, when we had the Lord's Supper, you remember Matthew 26, and I told you how that being on the Mount of Olives meant that there had to be an olive press somewhere and an olive house to put the olives in, and they would squeeze with that huge millstone, and they put one basket in and then they'd take it off and that was the best. That was the best juice. And then you go down to two and to three and to four and to five and to six and then you go down to the very worst of the worst of the worst of the grapes that you'd picked and you squish it with everything you got and it looks in it and it's the most disgusting, nasty thing and he says to Martha and he says to everyone else, how do they drink this stuff? you go there, you won't wonder why they drink it. But I'll tell you why they drink what he was trying. He wanted them to see what he was going to go through. First of all, when he prayed, he said what? Father, not my will, if it be possible, not my will. 
with thine be done. You say, oh, I, I do that all the time. Well, you may say it all the time, but saying it and willing to live it out is not the same. No, 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 it's not. You see, the first thing he saw that night when he began to pray and he stood before his father, Father, all I can see is the sludge and the dredge and the filth and the stench that's in this old rotten cup and all of that's because of all these stinking rotten sinners in this world. I've got to die for them. He went up the line praying for one Worst and another worst and another worst. Secondly, he prayed for the courts that he knew he was going to have to face illegally. And then he knew what crosses was. Since he'd been 13 years old, they'd cru- Romans had crucified people by the side of the road and Jesus understood. He knew the cruelty he'd faced, the crowd spitting on him. One day they're saying... One day they're singing, Hosanna to the king. The next day they're saying, crucify him. I've learned, you, you, don't, you just don't have many friends in this world. They get fewer and fewer and fewer. They'll let you down. They'll stab you in the back. You cannot trust anybody except the one who is always trustworthy, and that is a holy God. So he saw the future of our salvation. He saw the victory of our triumph. He sees it now in the flesh, and he must bear the cross alone over over this brook and up this hill waiting for him. He knew it was how every nail would feel. I should have brought the nails. I've got one about like that. That's what they put in in, in Jesus' hand, and they drove those nails, and he knew what every pounding would feel like. He knew it. You say, you don't know that. Yes, I do. I know it. You don't. I do. Read Psalm 22 sometime. See what it says. Psalm 89, see what it says. See the agony that Jesus went through. Can you imagine knowing they're about to crucify you and you even know how it's going to feel before you feel it? That makes it 10 times worse. But let me tell you something else he did. He knew when he got through with taking care of business, he endured all that for the joy that was before him because he knew there was a whole bunch of us old filthy sinners down in the bottom of that old, that old smelly, nasty, scummy cup that he was going to scoop up, wash off, clean up, and save and change by the blood of Jesus. And he, that's why he did it. God never had another plan. There couldn't be another plan. If there was, do you not think a holy God have figured it out? You say, well, I'm a PhD here today, and I, I really, you know, I really like to rationalize this thing. I tell you, won't you just go get you a drink of water right now? It'd be a good thing. But you can't rationalize away Jesus Christ. You cannot rationalize what he endured on Calvary's cross. You cannot rationalize that the skies turned black for three hours. You cannot rationalize that stuff. He knew it. 
And then he also knew the crowd. He knew they'd line the streets and there would be a few ladies that would come and, and, and maybe try to offer him. They'd push them aside. Women had no use in their society except for abuse. And they would just uh, travel down the streets where everybody could see them and where he'd been scourged to his back. You could see the ribs and the bones and the blood was coming out of his body. and None of the bones was broken. He was so whipped. In fact, the Bible says he was marred more than any man. In fact, I think he was marred more than any person who's ever lived. And so he knew what he was going to face. He knew what he felt. But old Simon Peter said, I'll tell you something, Lord, I understand all that. Man, I know it's a dark night for you, but that's all right, you got me. Yes, sir. I'll tell you something, Jesus. They come up here. Look here. I got mine on. I got it right here. I'll show them those balls. I'll take them out one by one. You don't have anything to fear. And so that night, when they come to get Jesus, old Peter pulled out his sword, but Jesus had already told him that's not the kind of sword that I want you to use. And so old Peter took him a swat at his head and missed his head and hit his ear. And that nasty, filthy ear hit the dirt. And before there was a riot and a chaotic scene that took place, Jesus reached down in the dirt, the captive, and picked that soldier up who was holding a spear to his back and put that ear back on his head. Don't you think the grandkids heard that story that night? He knew what he was felt. And I'm going to close, but I want you to understand this. Don't ever try to learn to pray what Jesus prayed in the garden for you. You pray for God's will for you, not God's will for him. He's already fixed that, okay? He's took care of that. So you pray now, God, not my will, not what I want, not what I say, not what I, what I feel. It's not mine, but God, I'd like your will. That's the prayer I need to pray tonight. So you got the passion. And the third thing is the, the Bible calls it agony. They start to to the city and the Bible said Jesus wept. Jesus wept three times in the Bible. He wept over Jerusalem because he loved the city. He wept by grave Lazarus because he loved the man. And Hebrews, he wept for me. And he wept for you and you because he loved you. And they could have taken him very easily, even with his greatest resources, even with Simon Peter's bull-headed muscles sticking out. 
like, like I used to look, you know, bulked up, looked like the Hulk with a white face. With all of his manpower there. All Jesus had to do is call thousands of angels. All Jesus had to do was to speak a word and none of them could have opened their mouth. All Jesus would have had to do was just speak one word and every one of them would have died right there. But he gave himself. You know why? Because when you come to Jesus with a problem, he wants you to know that you don't have a problem that's too big for him to handle. I'm going to teach you, write, write this down. Stop my notes, but I jotted it down. And, and I, I just want you to write five ways to deal with temptation. I'm not going to expound on them. Then we're going to be in the invitation. Number one, if you want to learn something about spiritual warfare, how many of you have to deal with spiritual warfare every day? Okay. Number one, Spiritual warfare, it is always encountered in and with prayer. Prayer is not always easy, but it is the only way to do spiritual warfare. Number two, it should be entered in, into, surrounded with spiritual friends. Yes, some of them go to sleep on you. But Peter really meant what he said. He just didn't understand what was going on. So you make sure you enter into it with spiritual friends. Number three, it is a place of spiritual strength just at the right time and a nick of time because in faith you can expect it. Jesus said to Simon Peter, I, he, Satan hath desired to have you. Now, in the back of Peter had been back there bragging, of course, you know. He'd been in the back there bragging, 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 bragging. That was Peter. Could kept his foot in his mouth or bragging, one of the two. And there he was. But, he stayed, came back, got things right with Jesus. But there was Jesus' case. He had a heavenly father and he had the Holy Spirit. And he teaches us that you can never go into spiritual warfare without expecting supernatural help. You have spiritual friends your encounter in prayer, you can expect supernatural help right at the right time. Peter would have fell through, but Jesus held him. Obviously, y'all I said he held him. Satan would have shook him out, boys and girls, and he'd be burning in hell right now. But Jesus said, I've prayed for you that your faith would fail not. 
If, it, that, if that only that verse was in the Bible, I'd have to believe in eternal security. If I know my Jesus can't keep me <laughs> when the devil couldn't get Simon Peter, I feel like I'm in good hands with all state. Amen. All right, here's four. Number four, when you go into spiritual warfare, it has to be a time of spiritual submission. The first time I walked into that place, God spoke to my heart and said, you arrogant little frog, you've been preaching what you do and what you wouldn't do and what you would do and what you wouldn't do. You know what you'd have done? Same thing they did. Number five, remember that spiritual warfare will come at familiar places being betrayed by familiar friends. Your unexpected problem right now is nearby. Nearby. 